Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. In 1984, Paul Goldberger wrote in the New York Times that Cranbrook, more than any other institution, has the right to think itself synonymous with contemporary design. Around the same time, Massimo Vignelli supposedly said that Cranbrook was the most dangerous design school in America. For the last 50 years, it seems, this small graduate school in a Detroit suburb in Michigan ignites strong reactions. Listeners of this show probably don't need me to tell you where I come down on Cranbrook. I am, and have always been, a fan. I've had Elliot Earls, the current artist-in-residence of the 2D Design Department, on the show a few years ago, and have interviewed many of the alumni, many of them who have gone on to teach, like Lorraine Wilde, Andrew Blauvelt, Mr. Keedy, Martin Vineski, Nancy Skolos, and Tom Waddell. The thread that connects these people, and the two people who deserve much of the credit for Cranbrook's famous, or infamous to some, reputation, are Kathy and Michael McCoy, the husband and wife duo who took over the design department in 1971 when they were in their mid-20s. Over their 24-year tenure, the McCoys led the charge on experimental design, interior meaning, and speculative work, and I'm excited to present a two-part interview with the couple, this week with Michael and next week with Catherine, to understand what it was like to be in the middle of this cultural shift in design pedagogy and practice. Michael, who I'm talking to today, studied industrial design, and has continued to practice through his career. After he left Cranbrook, he continued to teach at the Institute of Design in Chicago. And in this conversation, we talk about his early design education, how he and Kathy got the job at Cranbrook, and what they did when they got there. We talk about the role of theory in their work, and the rise of speculative design, and the value of interdisciplinary design education. I pick up many of these threads in my follow-up conversation again next week with Kathy. The two interviews together, I think, capture a moment and shed light on how Cranbrook's design department became what we know of it today. Scratching the Surface is funded largely by Patreon supporters, so if you like what we're doing here, I hope you consider supporting the show for a few bucks a month. Members get full transcripts, bonus interviews, and other exclusive content each month. You can visit us at patreon.com slash surfacepodcast for more information and to sign up. We really couldn't do it without you. Thank you, as always, for listening, and here is my conversation with the great Michael McCoy. so many uh, students who have gone on to become educators. And I think in many ways, you and Kathy's work at Cranbrook and, and then the work you did post Cranbrook has sort of spread and become, you know, there's little sort of pockets of your thinking and your pedagogical philosophies all around the world. And I, I kind of want to start by hearing a little bit about your own design education experience, your own experience being a student. You studied industrial design at Michigan State. Can you talk about sort of what that was like and how that influenced uh, the work that you would go on to do? Yes. Um, well, Kathy and I met at in the industrial design department mm. at Michigan State. Um, <clears throat> it's really more of a professional practice program, um, kind of learning the skills that necessary to actually design products. Um, mm -hmm. We had classes in engineering and product production methods, as well as um, 
things like ideation and sketching. So we learned how to design actual products for production, but there was not much emphasis on the cultural or social aspects of design. And actually in the profession itself at that point, this is 1965, 66, there wasn't a lot of um, critical thinking about uh, the impact of products and right. uh, on the culture. Um, that, so that prepared us for the skills to get, you know, actually get jobs in the industry. What was what was the focus of the like in thinking about products? Was it was industrial design at that program? Was that considered furniture? Were you designing um, like uh, like kind of like 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 uh, now a lot of industrial design students are doing like phones and things like like what kind of projects or, or products were you thinking about? What was sort of in the air at that time? The uh, assignments it was mostly all assignments. We weren't creating our own program. Right. Um, and they were, it wasn't just furniture. It was, um, it would be products like anything from, uh, like a, uh, uh, a lawnmower or an electric oh. drill, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, electronics also, but primarily those things that, um, industrial designers at that time were doing in practice. And, and again, it was all assignments. We didn't really make up our own projects for the most part yeah i mean that's how that's how my you know i guess that would have been 50 years later my graphic design undergraduate experience was the exact same way it was all sort of project driven professionally driven here's giving you the skills to sort of get a job let me ask you a question sort of actually sort of even before that why industrial design why did you go into that program did you have an early interest in design Actually, in high school, um, I was the kind of guy who was sketching on the uh, margins of my mm-hmm. notes when I was supposed to taking notes. I was sketching little objects and things. And the uh, my English professor, senior year, uh, gave us the assignment to you know write uh, write about what you were going to do. And I I was kind of torn between engineering and art, but I found this book in the Mrs. Eaton Rapids, uh, Michigan high school library. There's this one book on industrial design by Harold Van Doren. And I started looking at that and I thought, oh my God, you you get paid to do this kind of stuff. (laughs) And, uh, and then luckily uh, I was only about 20 minutes. The town was only about 20 minutes away from Michigan state university. So, and they had, uh, one, it was one of the few universities that actually had a industrial design program. So I signed up, I could, I could see immediately that's what I wanted to do. Um, so there was that kind of happenstance, um, that one book, that one assignment in high school English class, that one book that led me to, um, a profession I didn't know even existed. Right. Uh, and then Michigan State being nearby um, with that, with a program like that. I, I've heard versions of that story from all sorts of designers who sort mm-hmm. of ha- have that sort of, you know, they grow up in a town where no one else did that. That's my story. I grew up in a suburban Pennsylvania town. I had never met a graphic designer before I. Um, you know, sort of discovered graphic design on my own in the library. And then for me, it was early internet also. Um, 
And I'm always interested in sort of that discovery. And then when you get into school, the sort of idealized version of it, and then the reality of studying it, were you excited by those projects that you were assigned when you were a student? Was the work you were doing, did did it match that sort of interest in art and engineering that you were talking about? Did it feel like it was the the right choice? Yeah. uh, I mean, it really matched very much what was in that Harold Van Doren book. (laughs) And uh, I, I'd been sketching a lot in high school, so it was a lot of the uh, process um, at Michigan State was about sketching and ideation. Mm-hmm. And I was already doing a lot of that just on my own as, a, as entertainment. Right. So uh, right. It, it fit pretty well with my interests. And uh, also it was about problem solving. A problem was stated and um, uh, and I, I like problem solving. I really probably would not have done well as an artist because I, I really enjoy and, and really need yeah. that program, the kind of um, yeah. um, something you can tackle and, uh, and, uh, and solve a problem. You know, for us, it might be a small problem in someone's life, you know, a, a handle grip on an electric drill or something, but it's, right. uh, you know, it's, these little improvements to people's daily lives that uh, both Kathy and I like in, in design. So what, what year did you finish at Michigan state? That would have been 1966. Okay. So did you go, did you go into industry right away then? What kind of things were you designing? What kind of work were you doing? I I went to work for a company called Sunberg Ferrar. Okay. And they were doing, actually, they were doing very interesting projects. One of the first projects, uh, this is a group project, uh, was the San Francisco BART system, oh. the, uh, the actual cars, the train itself. Oh, wow. And uh, they were doing other, we did a uh, 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 commercial aircraft interiors, like um, one okay. of the first um, wide-bodied aircraft. Uh, and the uh, Lockheed SST, which never got built. Uh, this was all the interior of the, you know, the seating and the lighting and all the of the planes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was kind of the the office was great because it was it had such a variety of projects. Um, they designed uh, the Whirlpool and Kenmore washing machines and you know just a range of things. I mean, the reason I ask that is because you started, you, you you and Kathy took the job as designer in residence for the design program at Cranbrook in 71. So that's only five years that you were out of school <laughs> before you yeah. took that job. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in how that, ha- how that position happened, how you, how you decided to take that job. And then what made you decide to go into teaching so early or what, what was it that was so intriguing about this job to sort of leave, um, not to say that you you left industry, but to kind of make this shift right, to, right. to kind of change your practice a bit. Well, it's interesting because uh, initially I was doing a little bit of graphic design work for Cranbrook Academy of Art and mm-hmm. uh, based on um, the architect who was the president at the time, Glenn Paulson. And uh, they were looking for, they were going through a major um, change of faculty and um uh, there was this uh, vice president who was uh, Sue Thurman, who was uh, 
tasked with creating an, you know, essentially a new faculty lineup. <clears throat> and she heard that um, I had a wife who was a graphic designer. <laughs> and, uh, so she could get both industrial design and graphic design in the same package uh-huh. uh, because that's the department was that combination. So we were out in Aspen at the Aspen Design Conference and we uh, there was a little notice board and we happened to look on it and there was a note to, from the McCoys to call Cranbrook. <laughs> we went to the Jerome Hotel in Aspen and I called uh, into Cranbrook and she basically said, well, we'd like you to uh, apply for the job. <laughs> That's amazing. And, I, and Kathy's waiting outside. We're like camping in the in one of the campgrounds nearby. And so we both, I told Catherine, we both laughed and said, Oh, that's ridiculous. We can't do that. And later on around the campfire, um, we uh, started thinking about it and it's like, well, maybe we could do that. So I think our original idea was, well, we'll only teach. We might want to teach, but we would only teach when we knew everything. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which, of course, never happens. Right, right. So we went back and interviewed, and they hired us, and we started uh, that fall. And this wow. was, the interview was during the summer, and then we started that fall. Um, so that's that's how we started at Cranbrook in 1971. Can you talk a little bit more about that conversation around the campfire and that move from, well, we can't do this, to maybe we could? <laughs> what? Uh, what I, <laughs> Tell me about that shift. What what was happening in that? Co- I mean, I realize this is a conversation that's what's fifty years ago, um, yeah. but but like what what made you think maybe we could do this, or what was it that what, that was exciting about kind of you know taking this risk? Well, the marijuana helped, <laughs> of course. Oh, I should have known. <laughs> I forgot this was nineteen seventy. Well, and also um, the program. The program really almost didn't exist at that point. It had been started by Charles Eames. Yeah. It, was been, it had been strong into the 50s <clears throat> and then kind of it had devolved into just a place where students at Cranbrook that really didn't want to be in any of the other departments kind of you know, went to. So it was right. um, kind of multimedia, I guess. Um so we realized we could, we it actually was a blank slate. We could build it from the beginning. Oh, and we were getting a lot of uh, inspiration at the Aspen Design Conference. Um, uh, people like uh, Ricky Werman or mm-hmm. Richard Saul Werman mm-hmm. um, were inspirational in terms of um, public information about design and the city and right. man-made environment. So we we knew that um, that would be an area that we would we would be interested in, and um, so that that kind of brought us around to. I think if it was going to be a big established program, we might not have um, jumped at it at that point. That's interesting. That's exactly what my next question was going to be, and you started to answer it a little bit. I was sort of curious about what the state of the design program was at the time because. You know, it did have this sort of rich history with the Eames, with, with um, you know, these different industrial designers who had gone through. The right. graphic design side of it, it, that history is much harder to trace sort of before you both got there. There's much um, less of that, yeah. Yeah. And so how did, what did, what was your, your sort of mandate going in, either self-imposed or from 
you know, the administration, uh, what kind of, what were your goals for the program as I guess what, at this point you were like late twenties, um, to kind of think about building a well, program. We actually, uh, program? Kathy was 25. I was 26. A lot of Jeez. our students were older than us. <laughs> yeah. Of course, this is a graduate program. So we're not teaching fundamentals. Uh, it's not, it's a, it's an MFA program. Right. And the idea was to, um, get students to be thinking about things, issues that were beyond uh, current professional practice. Mm -hmm. And the, um, I think uh, actually Andrew Blauvel did a show called Hippie Modernism. Yes. So it's basically applying uh, the ideas of uh, making information transparent, um, holders catalog kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the formal approach was essentially modernist, you know, Helvetica and that kind of thing that was, and a lot of that was being talked about at the Aspen design conference. Um, so that really gave us our start. And we, um, we, uh, at one point got a, um, a grant from the, um, national endowment for the arts. And we designed a program for middle schools called, um, Oh yeah, problem solving in a man-made environment, and it it involved uh, basically uh, projects and assignments um, for the students to kind of look at their school and their community and and uh, in a sense kind of problem solve uh, their situation. And then we got involved with um, a guy named Robert Blake, who was head of design at Herman Miller and. He also was interested in public information about design. So we kind of co-created something called Design Michigan. Oh, right. uh, Which had, we had information for potential clients about how to work with uh, designers. Uh, We had a big show about the best big exhibition called um, Design Michigan and um, at the museum and had a lot of the great, products that have come out of Michigan, a lot of the Herman Miller and, and, you know, automotive industry stuff. And um, so that kind of spanned the early to mid seventies. And at a certain point we, uh, well, Kathy can tell you a lot more about uh, what was going on in graphic design. That's why we actually wanted to do two. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't, I want to, I want to hear about the industrial design (laughs) side of this for a second, because, you know, I I'm much more well versed in the graphic design in graphic design history and s- can sort of situate the work you were doing <clears throat> um, contextually in in graphic design history. But industrial design, uh, sort of what was happening at that time, is less familiar to me. Um, and so was was sort of the modernist uh, ideas the dominant form of industrial design at the time. And how were you sort of thinking about what an industrial design I, I, or like a desi- industrial design focused design MFA. What what was that kind of looking like for you? Well, it started out, you know, through the early seventies. It was pretty much kind of the same projects that you would find in any industrial design hmm. program. And uh, gradually, uh, both Kathy and I became much more interested in meaning mm-hmm. in design. Mm-hmm. And um, some things happened along the way. Uh, they uh, Daniel Liebeskin became head of right. architecture in the late 70s at Cranbrook. And we all lived on Academy Way. We were actually neighbors. 
Oh, wow. He was of design. He was head of architecture. Right. Our kids actually grew up together oh, um, at, the, at that early stage. And um, Kathy started having conversations with him, and she can describe uh, how that led to certain things. And uh, I started – he he kind of um, opened my eyes in terms of polemical work, uh, conceptual work, uh, which mm. he was obviously doing in yeah. architecture. Uh, he was still the paper architect at that point. Right. Um, and um, we had conversations about construct. The Russian constructivists. We were both big fans of Elisitsky and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those guys and the uh, the work that they did. Um, and as polemical work. Right. Um, and, uh, there was beginning to be some things going on in Europe in terms of maybe product design could be a critical practice. Um, then you could do, you could do product design, experimental product design that um, uh, explored ideas about culture and society. Right. And, um, and objects as cultural making, not just reflective of culture, but actual cultural make, culture, culture making. So, and he and I had talked about, oh, how about if we do a room like the uh, constructivists collaborated uh, and he'll do the room and I'll do the furniture. But <laughs> he never did the room. He got a little busy. Uh, <laughs> I had a chair called the door chair, right. which was my first conceptual furniture piece. And, um, and it won the uh, Progressive Architecture uh, Conceptual Furniture Competition mm. uh, in 1981. This, this is the one. This is the one where Paul Goldberger reviewed it. And yeah, said, this is this is the design that pretends to great theoretical depth, as if the designer could not admit that what he really wanted to do was make a piece of pure sculpture. Right, it's very cutting. The uh, I think he missed the point. Sorry, Paul, you missed the point uh, once again. <laughs> uh, but if there was a whole movement going on in which furniture in particular could carry interesting meaning, particularly chairs were seen as carriers of a lot of cultural weight. So, uh, you know, uh, if you look at a king's throne, it means power. If you look at the electric chair, it means death, right? That's, um, and uh, so chairs in particular, because of their, they're kind of a um, uh, an interaction or a connection between architecture and the human body, the human figure. Right. Like if you see a uh, picture of a large public space without any furniture in it, you don't really understand the scale. Right. You see it with a chair and you immediately understand the scale. Right. <laughs> because you know human scale. But what's interesting is how in some ways that type of thinking was was ahead of its time with what we see 30 years later with speculative design, critical design, discursive design. Um you know, all of these ways of like, how do we design objects or messages or artifacts that, um, like to use your term, are creating culture, are critiquing culture, of asking questions right. of culture. Right. And, and a lot of times when, when 
conversations about the work that you were doing at Cranbrook happen, I feel like that gets lost. Um, and, and it becomes stylistic. It becomes postmodern with this question of like criticality of speculative design. Um, I'm, I'm wondering about sort of like that transition from sort of that work 40 years ago to the work now. Do you see that as part of a similar lineage or as a continuation of a lot of that thinking, the sort of work that's being done in these speculative practices today? Well, it, I think it really evolved out of what was going on in the 70s in architecture. Mm. So you have <clears throat> critical thinking in architecture. You have uh, learning from Las Vegas by Venturi, and uh, that affected us. And then, of course, Liebeskind's work was kind of taking up it was about fragmentation, basically taking architectural yeah. elements and pulling them apart, deconstruction, if you will. So that um, that affected the work. And there was some work going on. Michele De Lucchi in, uh, in Milan was doing uh, products that were kind of fanciful, speculative products. So um, I started doing assignments. We uh, the, the way we worked at Cranbrook is the beginning of the semester, we would assign readings and uh, maybe a, an actual project assignment uh, just to get them going. Mm. Um, I mean, one assignment I gave them was uh, design a library for Roland Barth. <laughs> you know, a lot of interesting stuff there. Somebody did a reading desk that was this cast concrete with a... Uh, text cast into the concrete oh i love um, that and uh and then after that we'd ask them to bring in their readings and share them with the other students we'd have a weekly critique mm-hmm. they'd bring in their readings and then that way the readings would grow kind of organically and our idea was get the students you know kind of knowing how to know right because after they leave cranbrook uh they'd be back out in the in the world and uh, if they could master this way of knowing how to know uh you know uh, growing yeah. your, your growing your critical practice um yeah. that was our goal uh and we had a lot of students who were experienced designers right and we were saying well maybe you should unlearn a lot of stuff and then kind of relearn <laughs> in a way. Right, right. But, well, essentially it's um Sometimes we describe it as two years of psychotherapy. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it, um, um, so and eventually that evolved into thesis work in the second year. I, I, I think that what you just said about how so much of what you wanted to do was sort of help students develop their critical practices. Yeah, their, and, their own vision, I would say. Right. Like, and I'm wondering if you saw your role as designer in residence as a critical practice. Like, like how, how, how did sort of that, how did you approach that role? How did you sort of take the things you were interested in and embed them in the program? How did those conversations happen? How did that, you know, work, you know, kind of professional work? How did that all start to like fit together into your own critical practice? Well, we we thought of Cranbrook, the design department, as a bridge between theory and practice. Mm, mm-hmm. So um, uh, a lot of the work, the student work, was theoretical, but uh, it led to things that could evolve into practice, to actual products, for example. Mm, mm, mm. <clears throat> and uh, the nice thing about Cranbrook is they wanted you to spend half your time on your own work. 
the term was artist in residence, where you're working on your own work and then you're advising the students. Um, and we began to um, evolve this um, approach, kind of editors in a way, you know, mm. uh, Mm-hmm. We could give assignments, but also we would do desk crits, individual desk crits. And right. quite often, I mean, I would find there'd be uh, uh, the student would have their what they liked in their design ahead of right in front of them, but then there was a pile of sketches or paper, um, you know, at the side. I pick up those thing they had in front of them was quite an, often they're not not their best idea. Yeah. Uh, but in this pile of paper of sketches uh, to the side, I would go through those and I'll say, "Okay, this is this is your best idea." You know? uh, right. <laughs> it's your right. idea. It's not my idea, but I, I'm I'm trying to edit your thoughts, and um, so there was a lot of that kind of um, going on. And again, it's developing their own personal expression so that we didn't have a house style. At one point, Kathy and I were shocked to see there was a ad, a, a, an ad for position in design, and it said, must be proficient in Cranbrook style. <laughs> and we said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, the joke the joke that I always make when I hear that sort of, you know, line that there was the Cranbrook style is it was like, actually, all the rest of design had a house style, and yeah. you all were the ones who, who did not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wondering about that, that sort of those working with the students, those desk crits, the, even like those little assignments that you would give the readings that the students would bring in. Um, How did that change your own practice or your own thinking about design or what designers could do? I mean, it seems like, especially starting so young in many ways, you were a student Mm -hmm. right along with them. How, what did you learn from that experience? How did that change what you thought design could be? Well, as, as they say, the teacher learns the most, right? Right, right. That's just what we like about teaching. Um, so in my practice, I started doing uh, conceptual work like the door chair and that kind of thing. Um, and that sort of work really, the way it gets out is through um, galleries. And um, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, there was a company named Architectura. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. At the time when they made the door chair. And it was actually a, a couple of students of mine that started that company. Oh, I didn't know that. <clears throat> and they were also doing the sarin and the uh, alial sarin and uh, furniture from, uh, from okay. the uh, 30s, 20s and 30s. Um, and then on the other hand, I, I did want to uh, get involved in serious practice. So I got involved with a, uh, a fellow teacher at uh, the Institute of Design in Chicago named Dale Fonstrom. And we were part of a competition designed the next ergonomic chair for Knoll. Mm-hmm. And there were, uh, there were like five other, it was a paid competition. There were five other firms, including uh, Sutsas's firm in Milan. And uh, we won the competition and, uh, so that became an ergonomic chair called the Bulldog Chair, which was really their main best-selling chair for uh, about 15 years, from about 1990 to <coughs> 2005. Oh, wow. um, and they sold about a million chairs. So it's that kind of, I liked that 
we made 10 door chairs, uh, but then we made, uh, they made over a million bulldog chairs. And, uh, what I like about furniture design is you can operate within that range. It's like um, one off to, um, to millions or tens of thousands anyway. And totally different processes. Uh, the mass production processes are very expensive capital investments. I think the bulldog chair was $20 million in tooling. Oh, wow. Uh, but then the advantage of that is you spend the money up front and then the individual <coughs> parts um, don't cost very much. You both left Cranbrook in 95 after 24 years. and. Right. and- design, both industrial and graphic design, changed rapidly over that time with the introduction of computers, new software. Um, We sort of touched on, and I'll talk about this with Kathy a little bit more, sort of all the ideas of meaning and and sort of messages why why did you leave when you did it's i'm i'm gonna tell you looking at this 30 years later that seems like a like nice nice gig you know you get to work with students but you don't have to like plan classes you're working on your own projects what uh what why'd you leave what was sort of the ambition after that well actually the uh the president of Cranbrook, uh, a guy named Roy Slade, who we loved, who was really mm-hmm. a great guy. He was retiring. Uh, he actually said he would retire when our daughter graduated from high school. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Annie was going to go off to school. She went to Hampshire College, okay. and and uh, so uh, so we thought this is kind of a perfect time to leave. I mean, uh, we we felt like maybe there were other things we needed to experience and learn. So the uh, the head of the Institute of Design in Chicago, which was yeah. a ex student of ours, Patrick Whitney. Oh, right, right. Um, also a colleague of uh, of, of Meredith. Yep. Um, he proposed that we come there and teach. We we basically some kind of said we want something different, and Patrick said. This is different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't get more different than <laughs> to, to ID. Yeah, and, you know, because ID is more about the analytics. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, we, uh, and we'd been living in the suburbs of a beautiful campus, but suburbs of Detroit. And we wanted to experience Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we bought a loft in uh, near downtown Chicago. And, um, started teaching at IIT at uh, Institute of Design. And we learned a lot in terms of processes. Um, they were very into um, cultural anthropology as a, as a tool to understand how, what people really, how people interacted with the man-made environment. And right, right. So uh, it was a big change for us. And we, we were kind of ready for that kind of change. Yeah. Something that's interesting to me is that, you know, when you both were at Cranbrook, it was just the design program. Uh, and after you left is when it was split into two, into 2D and 3D design, which it still is today. Right, right. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts, I'm not, I'm not asking you to sort of critique the new model in any way, but sort of, it, you know, the value of having both of those together seems really interesting to me, especially in a world today where 
more and more design is interdisciplinary. And you right. look at like <clears throat> looking at a computer that was designed by an industrial, a team of industrial designers with a screen filled with text and images that were designed by all like so much of what we're designing now is interdisciplinary. What, what value do you see in having sort of interdisciplinary programs like that, as opposed to an increasing siloing? And, and I see this not just at Cranbrook, but at everywhere where there's this sort of preaching of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, but also this re-entrenching of discrete departments. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? How, do you have thoughts on that? Well, we always, uh, I mean, one of my periods in, in design that I most admire is the early modern, proto-modern period where mm. uh, architects were designing furniture and graphic design and graphic designers were doing the same thing in other fields. And there was this kind of interaction between all the design disciplines and art and uh, Cranbrook, actually, uh, the department was started by Charles Eames. It's called the Department of um, Experimental Design. Oh, interesting. And it was, he was always, like, interacting with other people on the campus, Eero uh, uh, Saarinen and others. Yeah. And uh, so the department had never been broken up into silos. A lot of the other programs at the time starting uh, especially after world war ii you know and then you had interior design industrial design furniture design graphic design you know et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then you had professional organizations built up around those so uh, we didn't have to like when we came in we didn't have to break it up uh, it was already it never had been siloed <laughs> right, right and we liked that we like to move between those realms. Uh, and uh, when we left, they decided for, uh, for one reason, they uh, really didn't have a person or a couple that embodied uh, those disciplines. Because mm-hmm. we really covered furniture design, graphic design, interior design, ex- exhibition design, right. all those things. So they hired um, the Makalas, uh, Scott and Lori Makala, Mm-hmm. graphic design and uh, Peter Sathis as uh, industrial design. Uh, b- uh, they were all our students. Um, so they really knew the program and all that. Right. And they did interact. They talked to each other, but uh, it became more separate in a way as time went on. I'm, I'm wondering sort of how we get that back. And I don't, I don't mean like institutionally, like programs should be merging again, but how, how do, how do we encourage design students today to be interdisciplinary, you know, to walk across departments um, to get some of that? Because you, you see this everywhere is these sort of departments fragmenting like this. Well, you can do it in terms of um, just projects, having Mm. faculty from different departments form projects. Uh, At Cranbrook, actually what happened a lot was just um, student by student, a student would interact with uh, and maybe do a project with someone from, like a designer would do something with a metalsmith or a ceramics person. So I think it'd be difficult just politically now to go back in and try to um, merge, you know, dissolve those silos. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of thinking like how you can be sort of, um, you know, <clears throat> without the institutional level, how can you sort of like rebel against them, you know, sort of like from the ground up in some way? I think at Parsons, for example, they try to do that. So I've talked to 
many, many of your former students <laughs> for this show. And you are mentioned in all of their interviews as having an influence on them. And so as I was thinking about talking to you, I thought that I would reach out to all of them and ask them what they wanted to hear you talk about that you hadn't Uh-oh. talked about before. And I didn't tell you that I was going to do this. So I apologize <laughs> to throw this at you. Um, and so I'm going to just throw a couple of these questions at you because I thought they were very interesting. People who have studied with you, who who sort of you know, know a lot of the things that you would have talked about. What are things that you haven't talked about a lot publicly or what are some areas that, you know, they want to hear your perspective on? And so let's, I want to start with something Meredith asked me to ask you, Meredith Davis, okay. um, who, who's longtime, was a longtime professor at NC State where I am now. Um, she asked this, what, what I thought was a really interesting question about how when she was at Cranbrook, she was sort of the last, she wrote, I'm, I was during the last gasp of late modernism in the emergence of the school's immersion in post-structuralist ideas. Cranbrook really drove that interest in American design education and could do so in a graduate program defined by independent study. Mm-hmm. How do programs innovate at a time when administrator and consumer students' attitude look for immediately qualifying job skills? Well, it's easier at the graduate level. Uh, as a, un, at the undergraduate level, of course, they want to see, you know, you know, they want to get a job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at the graduate level, I mean, people are coming into Cranbrook, I think, understanding that it's not necessarily um, uh, going to uh, enhance their um, job prospects. A lot of them are professional designers already, so they could re-enter the field easily. Uh, and they want to just explore um, kind of bigger uh, issues surrounding design, mm. which is the kind of thing you can't really do in a normal professional practice. I mean, you could have a critical practice, but the critical practice also has to generate some money. So you've got that kind of um, balance that you have to make in your, even if you consider yourself to be a critical practice. So uh, I think probably the um, solution is probably more at the graduate level. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a good, I, I think you did, you started to answer it. And I think it's a good question because I see this all the time is this sort of, interest in critical practices, interested in, you can't see me, but I'm putting in quotes, experimental work, interested in work that is polemical and challenging, but also, hey, I'm spending a lot of money to be here. I want to make sure I get a job after this. And that balance is so tricky. And I, as a teacher, I think about it all the time of wanting to encourage that type of work, but also realizing, hey, there's a set of skills that I need to be making sure that you learn too. Right, right. Exactly. And that you're talking about the... uh, Undergraduate level? I mean, in my case, yes, mostly undergraduate, but even right. I, I think see it sometimes in graduates too, less so. Uh, we've never really taught undergraduates, so <laughs> for a short period at, uh, at yeah. Institute of Design, but I think there is a kind of responsibility to equip them with the tools so they can uh, prosper in professional practice. Mm-hmm. And at the graduate level, um, there is the, they can make a choice, right? Uh, in terms of um, going to a program that's more a critical practice program. 
Let me ask you, uh, your former student, Mr. Jeffrey Keady, sent two questions. Um, these are, these are uh, hopefully kind of quick questions, so I'm going to ask you both of them. Uh, the first one, which is a very Keady question, I think. Um, Mr. Given, Keady. Mr. Keady, yes. Given the enormous disciplinary, disciplinary expansion, are designers more skilled, accomplished, and sophisticated now mm-hmm. than they were in the past? I think so, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that in, in terms of industrial design, but one of them is the advent of really good CAD programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can actually design something in, in, uh, in, in 3D and test it virtually. Um, there's something called FEA, Finite Element Analysis, so you can kind of test if it's strong enough. Um, I uh, I right. designed some airport seating, and I was able to test the idea that um, an entire football team could be jumping up and down on the seats <laughs> and not break it right. without even actually having done the physical prototype yet. Oh, that's so there's a lot of that. Uh, and um, although I do think um, I would like to see students doing more physical handwork. Mm. So they have a little more idea of physicality. Mm-hmm. A lot of products seem a little, you know, like they were only done in CAD and you don't necessarily get the feel, yeah, the yeah. haptic qualities. Yeah. Yeah. You see that, you see that in graphic design too, where you can say like, oh, this is never, this is the first time this was printed out was when it was printed fine. Like, yeah. you know, this is all done on the screen. Yeah. And you you see that in architecture as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some, Pretty bad architecture that would be, uh, <laughs> you know, eighty stories high. That would have um, benefited by students having a little more experience with actually how materials go together and that kind of thing. And that's also true in, in industrial design. Yeah, uh, Mr. Keaty's other question was: Looking back as your career as an educator, is there anything you would have done differently? Kind of knowing where design has gone, where the professions have gone. Um, sort of how your career has changed. Anything you would have changed? Uh, actually, I think uh, I think both Kathy and I think it was a real natural progression, um, and um, you know, opportunities popped up uh, both in the conceptual realm and in the, in the uh, professional practice realm, like the Knoll Furniture Project. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seemed to, um, we talk a lot about how thing, our career unfolds and we, yeah. Uh, yeah. we'll see opportunities and take them um, if it seems right. Well, right. Like taking the job at Cranbrook was kind of a leap mm-hmm. we'd never taught before. Um, and uh, so I think, uh, I don't think I would do anything differently. Nice. Uh, I have two more questions. These are of my own now. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you thinking about right now? Or like, what's interesting to you in design today? You've now had this long career. You've worked with all of these students. You've seen these changes. Your students have gone yeah. on and led programs who are now kind of creating the next generation of students. Right. What's exciting you about design today? Or what are the things or the issues that are on your mind right now? Well, in terms of professional practice, I'm working on work at home mm. furniture. Oh, um, nice. This would be the direction, you know, less um, 
less about the office. So I've designed a lot of um, products for office spaces. Right. And the trend is much more towards um, working at home or even office spaces that are, there's a term, residential, residential residential and commercial, (laughs) where the office is becoming more informal and more like your living room, you know. Right. Um, So that's my professional interest. Um, I mean, the the people that I look at, uh, actually there's... um, um, there's a new program at Cranbrook called 4D Design, right? right. Uh, and Carla Diana is has uh, formed that program, and she's doing, I think, really interesting work. Um, she has a new book out called "My Robot Gets Me." <laughs> you should you should check out. Um, and I, I think Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby, the yeah. Raby, they do they're always doing interesting work. And they'll set up situations like design products for a uh, dystopian environment. Mm -hmm. Like there is no water on earth left. So you design products that allow people to uh, gather water from the air and that kind of thing. All beautifully designed, by the way. Right. So um, those are things that I, I look at beyond my own work. Well, that leads into my last question, which is the question I used to end all of these. And I'm curious what you're reading right now. I, had, I actually look at um, this website called Dezen, D-E-Z-E-E-N. Yeah. And they have, they probably have the, they managed to get the most experimental stuff up the fastest. There's not a lot of critical thinking in it, but I can see these projects um, students from all over the world doing very interesting experimental work. So I get a lot of, uh, I find a lot of interest in, in that. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. This is, uh, this was really an honor for me. And I think, you know, you and Kathy hold a sort of, uh, a, a mythical position in design education <laughs> and to hear a little bit of the backstory and, and sort of the, the decisions that you were making along the way was, uh, was really illuminating and fascinating. So thank you for being on the show. Oh, well, thanks for inviting us. This episode was recorded on December 14th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.